Welcome to The Embodied Bicycle, a podcast to support parents who are raising struggling to launch young adults. You are not alone on this path. Here are your guides, Dr. Rick Silver and Dr. Maura Malloy. I'm Rick Silver. I'm the director of the Thrive Center. And I'm Maura Malloy. I'm an, a researcher and a psychologist. And this is the Embodied, Embodied Bicycle, Bicycle Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Tell me about this term, Embodied Bicycle. What is that all about? Yeah, it's kind of an odd-sounding term. So we, when we're, when we're talking to parents about uh, failure to launch. One of the things that happens is that they often focus on just the behaviors of launch, like does the young adult have a job? Are they going to school? Are they grooming themselves adequately? And what we want to try and convey to people is, although those are very important things to be focused on in the treatment program, what you really need to do is begin to look at why the young adult is acting in those ways. So, so the question becomes about not just the failure to launch, but rather the failure to form. Why did the young adult not go through the appropriate developmental steps so they have the psychological tools that they need in order to launch successfully into, into independent adulthood? Okay, so where does, the, where does the bicycle fit into that whole picture? Because it's, it's a great metaphor for thinking about the kind of work that the young adult needs to do and the family in order to move from being in a very stuck place to being in a more independent place. Mm -hmm. So think about the time when you were learning to ride a bicycle, maybe what, you're five, six years old, something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> and the first thing you do is, you know, somebody's holding the bicycle for you and they you get up on the seat for the first time and you have absolutely no sense of what it feels like. You're wobbly and you're tipping over. You can go maybe a foot forward without falling. That's about it. There's no feeling for you and how to sit on this vehicle and get it to move you from this spot to another spot. Mm -hmm. But over time with practice, it, it's not that the bicycle changes at all. It's something begins to switch in you and you're not just learning a few motor skills. It becomes a deep sense of who you are. You're connected with the bicycle. You have a physical sense of it. You have a, a mental sense, cognitive. Your thoughts are going in a certain way. Your perceptual system is working in a certain way. You have emotions about riding it. You're excited and you feel sure. So at some point, you're able to ride the bicycle because all of the information about how to do that effectively is now stored deep in your body. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's embodied sense, the it, embodied bicycle. It's the embodied bicycle. Yeah. So what does this have to do with failure to launch or struggling to launch or whatever phrase we're going to use? Because what has happened to these young adults is, in a sense, they never learned to ride their bicycle. Mm -hmm. They have never embodied the psychological qualities, the sensory qualities, the cognitions, the life skills, the behaviors that allows them to feel like I have what it takes inside of me on a very deep, clear level. I have a strong sense of myself about who I can be in the world in order to live independently, live out my passions, live out my strengths. Mm -hmm. They aren't able to, in a way, they're not deeply connected with a sense of self and with who they are and who they can be in the world. Exactly. They're lacking that, that connection to themselves and to others and that sense of meaning out in the world. 
in a way they've they've really shut down they've gotten locked into this shell and so the embodied bicycle and, and the treatment that we'll be talking about this sort of journey from being unable to ride the bicycle to fully embodying it and being able to direct your life in the way that you want to yeah. um, revolves around you know a treatment process that we'll be elucidating more in this podcast to kind of guide you through to give you hope that you're not alone mm-hmm. in this and also to begin acquainting you with a framework mm-hmm. that you can use to help understand what's going to get you to that point and get your young adult to that point of being able to guide your path in life. And, and we'll talk about uh, many of those things in upcoming podcasts. Yeah. And one of the key ideas that I think we, we have to grapple with with these young adults is Again, they're not they're not just learning a skill. They are recovering themselves. Mm. They're recovering a connection with self. Mm. So recovering their hearts. Uh, and, and, and that's an important piece of what the treatment process is about. We're bringing people back to what they didn't learn about themselves and helping them learn it again or uncover the pieces that had been covered up because of various traumatic events in their lives. But this process of growing from being stuck, from being in a place of what we call learned helplessness, Mm -hmm. to a place of intrinsic motivation and a sense of autonomy, that is about recovering your heart, recovering a deep sense of yourself, forming your identity in a way that it's solid and grounded. Yeah. We've even described this process as coming home to the heart. Yes. There's something that's really about connecting with the core of who we are. You say intrinsic motivation and I know we've described that in different ways it's really about reconnecting with this life force in a way you know this deep animating essence a drive a drive a drive to be who I am and to be that well to be able to do that out in the world and right now you know if you're tuning into this podcast you're likely so far away from that point you're really in this stuckness this learned helplessness and you're feeling confused, helpless, powerless, and your young adult is really shut down. If you're the young adult who's listening, you know, you are also confused and powerless and wondering, how the heck am I going to get unstuck and what does that even look like? So that's what we're here to do. We're here to provide some hope, provide some sense of you're not alone, and also to begin to give you a framework and tools to help get yourself unstuck or to think about how might I begin to do this. So that, again, as you said, is, is going to take place in future episodes. But I really want to be in this sense of stuckness today because I feel like that's so important to connect with whoever is listening and tuning into this. I wanted to just read you a quote. Some of the, the research that I have done and being connected with you all here at the Thrive Center has been around helping the young adults themselves give voice to their experience. What does it feel like to be in their bodies? What does it feel like to be in their heads and moving from being completely stuck, completely uncertain in how to move forward or not wanting to move forward, being so scared and kind of in this shell and isolated and alone, to being able to unfold and blossom in the world. And so I really want to stay with this stuckness. And I have a quote that I wanted to read, and I wanted, I wanted to then ask you sure. to talk a little bit more about what you're hearing in that quote, and maybe to you know, begin to talk a little bit more about what 
the failure to launch term is actually failure to form, you know, mm -hmm. sort of coming back to that idea. Mm -hmm. So here's the quote that seems pretty illustrative of the stuckness that young adults might be feeling. I was pretty stuck and pretty desperate to start moving forward again. Basically where I was at, I felt like that was as far as I was ever going to go. I wasn't going to be able to finish school. I wouldn't be able to get a job, become independent. There was depression and I was hitting these roadblocks especially with difficult classes that I just couldn't get past. My days were pretty much spent doing nothing. I didn't have a job. I had the occasional doctor's appointments with the therapist and whatnot, but otherwise I was just in my room, not doing much. Can you talk about what you might be hearing and how this might reflect the experiences of many, the isolation, the failures that, that young adults might experience and sort of the, the sense of apathy and learned helplessness. Can you speak it, a bit more to that? Sure. I, I mean, as you were reading that, what came to me was just this uh, pervasive sense of despair that people experience. When you talk about stuckness, there's oftentimes when, when people come to us, there is absolutely no sense that they have any capability to move forward. This, this is the end of the line for them, and they're 20 and they're waiting to live out the next 60 years or not live out the next 60 years so they and deal with nothing but despair. I'll often tell the story about early on in the program, there was an exercise that we were doing where several of the professionals were sitting with several of the young adults in a group therapy session, mm -hmm. and we were playing a therapy card game where there was a, a picture of it might be somebody lighting a light or somebody running up a hill. And, and uh, uniformly, the, and, and each person had to give their interpretation of the card, and you're sort of building a story based on each of those cards, mm -hmm. sort of seriously. So uniformly, the professionals would say things like, and the person running up the hill is going to be achieving their greatness, and, and, the, um, and the person looking at the candle sees the light in their life, and the, and the young adults would be saying things, and the, the person standing at the bottom of the hill realizes that they'll never make it to the top, and mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're staring into the candle, wondering if they should kill themselves, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. so, and afterwards, we sort of laughed about it a bit, but we realized mm -hmm. that, uh, that, that for the young adults, you know, they, were, they were saying to us, who are you kidding? Mm -hmm. you, know, you guys have this sort of rosy picture of the future, but for us, we see nothing but a dead end. So, so this notion of being stuck, again, isn't just about I can't drive or I can't get a job or I can't complete classes at school. It's, it's a sense that you no longer have value or, or, uh, or, or, or worth or any kind of uh, agency in the world. Mm. I'm at the end of my rope and there's nothing that I'm going to do to be able to create a meaningful, fulfilling, joyful life. Mm -hmm. Almost a sense of, of hopelessness that comes about, yeah, and yeah. this real, you know, and when, when we say stuck, and when I come across these words like roadblocks in this, you know, okay. that there's all these obstacles, that I don't even see the, the path that I'm going down. I don't see that there's any goal or vision that I'm going towards. Right. I'm completely just in, in this shell, and it feels, or this, this, the crushing quiet of the dust. Yeah. There's, a, yeah. there's a poem that you've written that sort of encapsulates this feeling called this house is all I know. Mm -hmm. And this sense of isolation, um, oftentimes of, 
of a person sitting at home and just thinking, this is it, and I don't mm -hmm. have any sense of the way forward, mm -hmm. and I'm blocked completely. Mm -hmm. And I'm blocked not only in the world around me, but I'm blocked from any sense of who mm -hmm. I am and what gives me joy, what gives mm -hmm. me hope in this world or strength or what my passions are and how those could be used to guide my path. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a lot of uh, numbing and sort of avoidance mm -hmm. that we see. This mm -hmm. that when there is this, and I really want to get more deeply into this idea of failure to form. But mm -hmm. when there is this learned helplessness, there's a real sense of deep discomfort in being with myself. Absolutely. And a desire to avoid myself at, at all costs, in a way, by numbing out. Right, because the I think the internal experience ranges, and we're talking a bit in extremes here, but this is, this is not too far from the experiences that people will convey to us. Their inner experience ranges from a, a deep emptiness. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm trying to go back to the bicycle analogy, uh, yeah. you know, almost as if... Um, I know I have to get from here to there because that's what's expected of me as an adult, but I don't even have a bicycle. I don't know what my bicycle looks like, and I have no idea where to find one. So there's this deep emptiness, this lack of a, a real identity to carry you through. So their inner experience ranges from that to um, a depression to uh, extreme anxiety, panic. We, we have people who can talk to us for maybe five minutes at a time because that's all that they can stay present with what their feelings are. And then they need to go back to distracting themselves mm -hmm. and something. So, it's very, so painful. it's very painful. I mean, imagine imagine only being able to stay present with yourself for five minutes at a time. So it's a very it's an excruciating experience for a lot of people. There's a lot of shame that seems to be part of this experience. Shame is for young adults. It. Right, right, right. Because everybody else, it seems, yeah. every everybody else seems to be moving forward with their lives, finishing college, finding a job, finding a relationship that's giving right. them a real sense of fulfillment. Right. And there's a sense that I'm not keeping up. I've failed. I've failed in school. I've failed in work. I've failed in relationships with my friends, with, mm -hmm. you know, what, whatever their experiences are, mm -hmm. whether it's being bullied or whether... You know, we can talk a little bit more about some of the, the experiences that, that lead a person to feeling this way at 20 mm -hmm. or at 25 or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But um, there's a lot of shame that seems to be part of this experience. And it, and it leads to this vortex of just feeling further and further closed in mm -hmm. and, and less connected. And so part of what we will begin talking about is how to begin drawing a person out of that shell and in some ways, that's about connecting them with not only, you know, a therapist or somebody who can, but really crucially peers, other peers who mm -hmm. get it. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's part of what we'll talk about. But again, that's, that's getting into some of this coming home to the heart mm -hmm. treatment process. But mm -hmm. first, we really want to, you know, elucidate this idea of failure to form. And I, we've kind of danced around it a little bit, but I wonder mm -hmm. if you can just delve a little bit more into that. I will. Let yeah. me come back to the idea of numbing, though. You brought that up. Yes, and it's yes. a very critical point because, yeah. because we'll get complaints from parents about, my child is lying to me, yeah. or they stay in their room all day and play video games, or they're using marijuana. Yeah. And, and what we all have to understand is when you are in that level of psychic pain, mm. you will, of course, in order to survive, do anything you can possibly do 
to shut down that pain. So you smoke weed, so you distract yourselves. So you tell your parents that, no, it's okay, I'm, I'm doing fine in school, so you won't have to deal with the pain of disappointing them yet again and hearing their criticism yet again. So numbing... You hide from yourself and from others. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, now, in a sense, we, we have, you and I have now sort of, uh, we're talking about uh, the, um, the a later stage of development of failure to launch when, when a lot of these very... Um, problematic coping mechanisms have already become uh, kind of deeply consolidated in who they are. Very entrenched. Very entrenched, the, yeah. the lying, the numbing, the resistance to treatment, the sense of emptiness, the despair of not going on. This is really sort of late stage, if you will, mm -hmm. um, of failure to launch. Uh, but coming back to your, your question about uh, failure to form, mm -hmm. you know, you and I have talked about the sort of the stages of failure to form. And, and uh, it's important for people to understand that this, this doesn't just sort of pop up in high school or college and everything was going well before. This begins in utero. Mm. This begins with a, a vulnerable nervous system and a vulnerable body. For example, um, you know, if one of the things that happens if you have oftentimes, if you have autism spectrum disorder, ASD, Asperger's, uh, or ADHD is you'll uh, be, you experience a great deal of sensory sensitivities, mm -hmm. that the volume on your sensory experience is too loud and it's very uncomfortable and very, uh, creates a great deal of agitation for you internally. Overwhelming the, the system. Overwhelming the system. Right, so all of your energy becomes to try to just tamp down that kind of sensory noise inside and you don't have the energy left to do other things. Mm -hmm. Well, where does that begin? That's not the kid's fault. That was passed down through the genes to the parents. And the brain formed in a way in utero that it couldn't adequately tamp down these messages. So this is when the child's born and you see an exceptionally irritable baby or a little kid who when the toilet flushes, they put their hands over their ears because they can't stand the noise. Mm -hmm. A variety of ways of reacting to the sensory overload. And I'm, I'm saying not to get into the whole issue of sensory sensitivities per se, but by way of saying... These kids are born with vulnerable brains. Yeah. They start the world with certain limitations or deficits or neurological glitches that will then uh, be the foundation of their development for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. so, so we have to understand that, that that's where they begin. So that's what we might call the vulnerable child. Mm -hmm. And then that vulnerable child begins to experience a variety of uh, events in their life. They're exposed to the family and friends and schools, uh, so on and so forth. And, and uh, we think about this stage of development of failure to launch as the beleaguered child. So, so it's the vulnerability, the more genetic vulnerability, yes. uh, which may or may not be present. I mean, the, the, this is often present, but it can yeah. also arise, it seems to be, from these layered environmental stressors of, of right. and and that sense of we've talked about the idea of trauma and I think trauma is a word that is confusing to a lot of people mm -hmm. or can sort of suggest that there was some really big. awful big event mm -hmm. and that's not always necessarily uh, what it means in the most true sense of the word that trauma actually is more about as I've heard it described the internal response mm -hmm. to external events mm -hmm. so that and and that traumas can not only just be the one big event but can be a series of smaller more chronic 
things that are happening over time, including genetic vulnerabilities, but also including, you know, um, maybe a lack of emotional attunement in the family growing up, or a sense of not being seen or, or recognized for how I am, and that, that blockage that can begin to develop. Because you talk about this overwhelm that happens internally, right. and then this desire to sort of escape the overwhelm. Right. And what seems to happen in the experiences of many is that it begins early and it begins to it it, it worsens through the years mm -hmm. and this sense of I can't handle this internal emotional experience it's too overwhelming and then I go into fight flight or I go into shutdown but there's some rupture or blockage that happens from this again mm -hmm. being this sort of connection with who I really am and feeling good in that you know being able to live out my identity and who I am. So there's a mm. there's a blockage that happens as a result of these traumas, mm. um, both collective and chronic or extreme event sort of thing. So we talk about the, the, the big T trauma, mm -hmm. which are the ones we sort of classically think about when we talk about trauma, which is sexual abuse, physical abuse, extreme emotional abuse, neglect, mm. um, where... Uh, Perhaps I'm overstating what I understand about this, but probably for many people, if they are exposed to that, no matter what their gene genetic makeup is, they're going to have some kind of extreme internal reaction just because the violation of self is so great that it's going to produce a fight or flight response. Yes. I'm probably overstating that case because there are many people who survive that trauma and are relatively psychologically intact, although there are also many, many more who don't. Big T trauma, yes. little T trauma. Um, things that we wouldn't call trauma. Let's walk through a little case here. So it's the ADHD child, hyperactive, zipping around all the time, bouncing off the walls in social settings, um, intruding, uh, impulsive, too loud, uh, not picking up social cues. Uh, so what happens to this kid? Mm -hmm. So People might initially let them into the social group, but after a while, they begin to feel uncomfortable. These are young kids now. We're talking about four or five years old where this kind of development begins to happen. So they begin to reject this child, mm. and this child gets this sense of, I don't fit, and I'm not a good person, mm. and somehow I'm different than other people. Um, and then you take that same child and you put them in a school setting, mm -hmm. and uh, they're very, very bright, but they can't focus. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they're expected to be responsible to some degree, but because they have problems with executive function, they can't plan, organize, follow through, do all those tasks that are required in order to be successful in an academic setting. So again, another insult to the psyche. I'm stupid. I can't make it. Now, when you say insult, can you? I want to like just drop down for a moment because yeah, I heard yeah. a few terms in there that I want to yeah. make sure that that people listening are, are understanding and are right. familiar with. One right. is executive function. Yes. You could Clarify. talk a little bit more about that. And then what you mean by insult. So executive function, this this is another podcast, in and of, several yes. podcasts in and of themselves. But for shorthand for today, let, let's put ADHD and, and executive dysfunction in the same bucket. Mm -hmm. So um, what we're really talking about on a biological level is is the front part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is the, um, you had a wonderful phrase for it the other day when we were talking. The, the CEO of resilience. The CEO of resilience, yes. right? And I sometimes talk about it as a conductor of the rest of the brain, yes. right? So, so one way to think about what are these executive functions, um, 
think about um, uh, you have schoolwork that you need to do or project at work or you're a mom or dad who's uh, at home and you're you're running the domestic show mm -hmm. right in, in any of those jobs if you will there are certain things that have to occur consistently in order for us to be successful in mm -hmm. that to, to, to be able to follow through and complete the tasks we need to complete uh, you need to be able to conceptualize the task to, in its entirety. And it's all its steps. In all of its steps. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to prioritize those steps. Mm -hmm. You need to have the energy and the wherewithal to sort of initiate yourself moving into those steps. Mm -hmm. You have to maintain your motivation. You have to have the flexibility to change course when things don't go the way you're, you're expect, mm, they're expected that to resilient go. Adaptation resilient adaptation. Resilient adaptation, right. the inevitable stumbles or obstacles that come about. It's life, right? Yeah, There's going to be what are the, be, the best laid plans, right, of right. mice and men. You know, something's going to go wrong, and the brain has to be adaptive, but, mm -hmm. the, but the, the executive dysfunction brain is inflexible to a certain degree. You can't adapt. I, yeah. I want to challenge you for a moment here in the sense of, the executive dysfunction brain. I think, you know, there is a sense that in certain kids, there's these genetic vulnerabilities, ADHD, yeah. autism spectrum, where that part of the brain is, there is dysfunction there right from the start. Mm -hmm. But in my understanding, as I've come to, you know, research and understand this, this problem developing, it's also, it can arise from the experience of, of stress in one's life, especially as a child growing, where that, that sense of overwhelm, it's like the emotional part of our system, the amygdala or whatever, is, is in overdrive because there's so much stress coming in. And when that is in overdrive more chronically, it begins to interfere with the capacities of this CEO of resilience. So when there's so much energy put to just managing the stress that is coming, whether from the genetic vulnerabilities and or the environmental stressors that come about in a kid's life, mm. like growing up, you know, with with parents who are having their own struggles and fighting or or growing up in poverty or having, you know, any number of different chronic stressors that can be present in a kid's life that this can overwhelm the system and begin to cause real difficulties in this area. In executive function. So, yeah. so just to clarify, because this, the, you know, the, the diagnosis of executive dysfunction and ADHD gets very controversial in many ways. So, yeah. uh, so here's what we do know from the research is that, that, that attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, is one of the most inheritable brain conditions. Yeah. Um, so about 90% of, 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 of ADHD can be accounted for by genetic inheritance. Mm -hmm. However, what you're talking about, which I think is important to consider is, is so that's nature. What's nurture? What's the role that nurture plays in all of this? Mm -hmm. And really, and, and this is my, I, I haven't read research saying this, but this is my thought from my mm -hmm. clinical experiences. Yeah. You know, you really have in a sense a continuum of people who on one end have no resilience when it comes to um, uh, no, no, no ability of the prefrontal cortex to carry out the executive functions when they're under a minimal amount of stress. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. That window of tolerance is much the window of smaller tolerance is much smaller. People. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's people who do perfectly fine no matter and, and actually might thrive on the stress. Yeah. The so, window of distress tolerance is wider. Yes. Okay. Right. Right. So, so, so for example, if a child is in a 
highly demanding academic situation where they're not performing, or in social situations where they're falling apart, not doing well, or in home environments that might be excessively emotional or not sufficiently supportive emotionally, that child will begin to experience anxiety, let's call it that, although that's a very broad blanket term. That experience is itself a further disruption of the executive function, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. we, we know that there's a, a U-curve of performance and that uh, if, if, if we're holding the graph up to the audience, uh, starting over here, on this end, if we don't have enough excitement and stress and stimulation, that our level of performance is very low, mm -hmm. right? We, we don't even get up and get out of bed, in a sense, unless there's something stimulating us to do that. Mm -hmm. And then as the stimulation begins to grow, um, we get more excited and, and activated, and the prefrontal cortex is, is at the top of its game at a certain amount. There's an optimal level where the, there's a right amount of stress and excitement and stimulation, and the prefrontal cortex is humming, and the whole brain is working harmoniously. That's our peak performance. What you're referring to is the downward slope of the upside-down U-curve. Uh -huh. As the stress gets too much, performance begins to decline, in part because executive function begins to decline. Well, it's this chronic fight-flight response yes. that gets activated. Yes. And as a result, begins to interfere with brain function, brain performance. But I want to come, this is yes. so interesting to delve into more of the neurological underpinnings of all of this and to see how nature and nurture interact. But I want to come back to, you know, the experience of those who are listening and really trying to understand where they are in this journey. And so... You had a phrase called the ghost who copes. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about how this ghost who copes, who this person is, and how it evolves out of these, these nature and nurture experiences that they've had throughout right. their life? So again, just walking through the developmental continuum, yeah. the vulnerable child, the beleaguered child who is if you will, set upon by all these environmental challenges that they can't handle. Those were the insults. The it, insults, yeah. right. The stressors. Right, which can yeah. be physical insults. You know, people can be bullied and can be hit, but oftentimes it, it's more the psychological insults mm. that you're dealing with, uh, which can be, well, what I wanted to throw in about that, and I'm getting to your question about the, yeah. the ghost who copes, some of the insults, and we need to think about this carefully, have to do with the family. Now, I want to be careful. We never want to blame the parents. Parents love their children, and they do the best that they can, right. right? That's the assumption that we have here. But we're all limited as parents. You know, I have three children. You have three children. Yes. We know that there are things that we do exceptionally well, and there's ways that we're learning all the time. Absolutely. Right? And our we children, stumble. We stumble, yeah. and, our, and our children will have to cope with our stumbles throughout their lives. Mm -hmm. This is life. Uh, it'd be nice if it was otherwise, but it's not. So, so we have to we have to note that the parents play a critical role in terms of they both love their children and they also provide sort of psychological insults to their children inadvertently because so, of their own limitations. And again, with this word insult, I just want to clarify because I, when I first heard it, I yes. thought, "Ooh, that's quite a loaded term." Yes. But in in fact, you're using it in the more medical understanding of the yeah, term. Yes, that's correct. As right. a stressor or yes. a certain kind of thing that that affects the system, it affects right. the, the growing child right. negatively. This, yes, this is not an insult in the colloquial sense. Of, right. You're a lousy person. Right. right. It could be. That you, could be part. That of does it, but happen. That's not, <laughs> right. Right. But that's not what this term is included. Or it's right. not all right. exclusive to that. No, it's not. No, it's it's. It's a psychological sort of inadvertent strike, psychological strike against the 
person. Okay, right? okay, yeah. By some outside force. Yes. So coming back to this ghost who comes. So what, first of all, th this is then what we might consider, it's a, it's a bad choice of words, but I'd call sort of the terminal stage of failure law, mm, right? Okay. Um, uh, the, 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 when people have gotten to a true level of being stuck, when they have this a very high level of learned helplessness or hopelessness, mm. they are functioning as what we call the ghost of ghosts. So what does that mean? So I'll, I'll come at this sort of from the those who have healed or who haven't had to go through this kind of developmental, uh, these developmental challenges. Um, we, we just, to a large degree, we function well in the world because we are connected with who we are on a deep level. Mm -hmm. We know what our strengths are. Mm -hmm. We know what our passions are. We've dreamed into the future based on those strengths and passions. Mm -hmm. we, are see, we see ourselves connected with the world, mm -hmm. e e extracting value and meaning from the world and giving that back to the world. Mm -hmm. So we, we are an authentic self. We live out of something that feels true to us. And we have some embodied sense, some intuitive sense that this is who I really am. This is my path. Right. Is my, yeah. right. And we can relate to this in a very practical way. Like if, for example, if you get sick, whether it's a psychiatric illness or a physical illness, you'll often say, well, I don't feel like myself. I don't feel myself. Yeah. I don't feel myself. We know who we are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's the authentic self that we've learned to identify internally is, ah, this is who I am. Uh -huh. yes. Right. Okay. Who's the ghost? Well, let's assume, fortunately, even though it's painful, most of these people don't end up dying or killing themselves, thank God. But they still have to survive. Mm. They have to survive with an overwhelming amount of pain. So they have to be able to shut that down. Mm -hmm. And they have to put up something that is the mask, that is functional mm. for the world. The sense of avatar self. Almost. The avatar self, right? So I will present to you what you need to see in order for me to interact with you. But it's not truly connected right. with an authentic self, with the heart, with the spirit, with this enlivening force. Mm -hmm. So you are, in a way, we can think of that metaphorically as the ghost, yeah. right? We, we are an image that is hollow. And, and of course, this is, these are all sort of overstatements to some degree, too. We're drawing very uh, powerful, extreme, uh, hyperbolic kind of pictures here. Nobody's yeah. just that. But, but it does convey a sense of of the intensity of the experience for, for people who are struggling to launch. Yeah. And so, the sense of being adrift or empty, mm -hmm. the sense of not really being connected with that true self, or that true self is so shut down mm -hmm. because it hasn't it felt safe to be that in the world. You know, there's that, that sense of this, this shell, and, and yeah. many young adults will talk about almost a sense of being locked in or shut down. Right. And, and I have this feeling that that's the locked in, that's the true self, it's still in there. Right. There's the, the spark and the embers, and that's what we will be talking about, how to connect with that and open that up so that that can begin to blaze more brightly again. Mm -hmm. But right mm -hmm. now, it's, it's shut down, and as you said, this mask, because they have to make it somewhat out in the world, is presented to the world, but it's not in any way that real authentic true self that's not enlivened by that animating essence. Yes. While you're speaking, I was thinking about this medical condition. I think I have the name right. I think it's the shut-in syndrome. Oh, yeah. So, right, so it's just this neurological condition, and neurologists who are listening, please forgive me because I, I, I might have this wrong. I'm a mere psychologist, psychiatrist, so 
Um, uh, so uh, the, the idea is that there's some part of the brain that is dysfunctional so that the person, even though they are alive on the inside in some way, can't mm -hmm. have a voice for who they are on the a outside. A voice. A voice. They can't yeah. speak their experience any longer. They're, they're shut in and shut down. So this is, uh, it, it may not be the best analogy in the world, but yeah. it, it conveys something about the experience of the young adult too, is that authentic self is locked deep inside, mm -hmm. and they have yet to find a way to, to voice that to the world, mm -hmm. to, to speak that clearly, to tell their story, their narrative about their lives. So part of the unfolding, moving from the ghost who copes to the, uh, the successfully launching young adult, means finding a voice ah, for yes. self. Right? Connecting with that voice inside. And mm -hmm. how can we connect? Yeah. How can we begin to blossom that forth? Right. The, and the, this coming home to the heart process that we'll talk about, yes. we will get into this idea of the three C's or even the three parasites. We'll explore this further. Right. But it, we've talked about this metaphor before of being rooted in relationships, yes. challenged by... Um, various ways of developing confidence and then, you know, beginning to develop confidence in self and then being able to really connect with this true self and, and authentically blossom out into the world. Right. Really connect with. So um, that is part of our journey going forward, but we wanted to just give this initial sort of foray into the experience of the stuck young adult and begin to explore some of the factors, as we have done today, the, the, the genetic vulnerabilities, the beleaguered child with the environmental stressors that have led to this point of ultimately this place of learned helplessness, yes. that nothing I do is going to make a difference anyway, so I almost a place of giving up. Giving up. You know, the ghost who copes. So this is um, where we've begun today. And I would like to, to um, end on a note of hope. Yeah. Because as you begin to talk about, we talk about, uh, or or as the family and the individual begins to explore the, the depth of this experience, it's easy to become uh, frighteningly aware of how powerful and painful it is. Mm -hmm. um, that is a beginning. It's not an end. It's a beginning. And what we see is young adults and their families who commit to doing the hard work of transformation, moving from that place to a place where the young adult becomes increasingly, over months and years, engaged in themselves in a positive way, clearer identity, more of a sense of their strengths, connected to the world, a vision for the future, the motivation to move forward. So, so there's every reason to hope that people will heal, they will improve, they will reach this stage of independence. So, yes. And that even this suffering can be a gateway toward growth. Yes. I mean, we, we sometimes use the phrase, or I've used the phrase, no mud, no lotus. Yes. That in a way, the, the mud that you're currently stuck in, this muck, that there is a way out of the muck. And actually, by beginning to give voice to one's experience by beginning to make meaning out of the suffering, that in itself leads to more growth, to really more authentic, and, and ultimately to more resilience. Because coming back to resilience, which is so much of how we are thinking of this process, mm -hmm. helping the young adult or empowering them 
to become more resilient, able to manage the, the inevitable stumbles and struggles in life. And, and inherent in the word resilience is this sense of growth through adversity. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly. So um, perhaps we can leave it there with this mm-hmm. idea that we will be exploring resilience and, and, and also weaving in, I want to do a lot more of this as we have so many voices of these young adults and of parents who have been through this process that we will be weaving in and I think uh, we will begin exploring the structure and kind of the, that this has been a very dialogue driven episode and, mm-hmm. and we will do a lot of that and then we'll also be inviting various people in to give voice, various experts in this way, to give mm-hmm. voice to different aspects of this experience. Yes. Thank you for a very lovely conversation today. I look forward to our next conversation. Yes. Thank, thank you, you all for joining us thank you, for our first episode of The Embodied Bicycle. And we look forward to uh, you joining us again in the future. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>